Good morning. Welcome to the Backyard Professor videos. I'm going to continue my analysis of biblical archaeology and why it does not support Joseph Smith's literal understanding of the Bible and some of the problematic nature of his doctrinal restoration. I have a few books and selections I'm going to read from. They probably amount to about 6,000 pages of materials I'm going to briefly summarize in about a half an hour for you. I'll just mention the author and the name of his book. I won't worry about publication or time of publication. You can look them up through Google if you care to. I would suggest you do. They're excellent sources. So let's get on with it. I want to demonstrate today the theme of the ancient mother goddess in the temple. But first, we need some background as to who she was. She goes by many names, as a lot of you, I'm sure, are aware. So let's get right on to this. Mark Smith, The Early History of God. I'm also going to show you some beautiful pictures of biblical archaeology, of the Asherah, of King Solomon's Temple, of the Caravim, etc. So enjoy those as I go through this presentation with you. The most significant change involves Israel's cultural identity. Despite the long regnant model that the Canaanites and Israelites were people of fundamentally different culture, archaeological data now casts doubt on this view. The material culture of the region exhibits numerous common points between the Israelites and Canaanites. And in fact, now biblical archaeology does and has established that the Israelites actually are the Canaanites. In the early Iron Age one, what they call way back after the conquest of Israel, according to the biblical version now, that's an inaccurate uh, concept. We know the way the Bible portrays that did not occur that way. Archaeology has shifted our understanding of that, but what it has done fundamentally, as Mark Smith shows, the Israelites were the pagan Canaanites. That is fundamentally established now. The change in the scholarly understanding of early Israelite culture has led to the second major change in perspective. This involves the nature of the worship of Yahweh, Jehovah, the Jehovah cult, involving all of the rituals. That's why they call it cult. They don't mean the modern version of cult. They mean the practice of the religion. That is what the scholarly understanding means with the change of perspective concerning Israel's Canaanite background, long-held notions about Israelite religion are slowly eroding. And yet that religion is mentioned in the Bible. And that was the religion that Joseph Smith simply and naively read right out of the biblical text, not understanding the problematic nature of the biblical text. 
Yes, he could claim he had revelation. Yes, he could claim he was inspired by the Holy Ghost to elaborate a specific doctrine of Adam or Enoch or Moses or Abraham or whoever have you. That doesn't make it real. Archaeology has shown something truly different. Things that Joseph Smith missed that were of major importance. Baal and Asherah were part of Israel's Canaanite heritage and the process of the emergence of Israelite monolatry was an issue of Israel's breaking with its own Canaanite past. It was an instance of old Israelite religion that the Israelite worship of Baal and Asherah took place. That was the essence of their religion. William G. Dever, what did the biblical writers know and when did they know it? If we attempt to coordinate text and artifact, it is evident that most of the features of the area known as Dan in Israel, the high place in Dan, are misunderstood by the southern writers and the editors of the Hebrew Bible. These southern writers of the Old Testament, the later edited version, were loyal to the temple in Jerusalem. The installation in general, however, is condemned by the biblical writers as a prime example of the worship of foreign gods. In this case, no doubt, the Canaanite Phoenician deities Baal and his consort Asherah. Nevertheless, despite the disapproval of the later biblical writers that we think is the original biblical theology, which it wasn't, the archaeological evidence from Dan illustrates dramatically that non-establishment cults, that is, religious practice, belief, and understanding, and theology, these did exist apart from the orthodoxy from Jerusalem. And these existed in the early monarchy of Solomon and David, as well as throughout Israel's and Judah's history. Tell El Farah in the north, the biblical Terzah. This is the temporary capital of northern Israel in the early 9th century BC. This was excavated, or excavated by Pierre Roland Deveau in 1946 to 1960. Just inside the city gate is a Masiba and an olive press very similar to installations at Dan. No doubt a gate shrine, like those of which the Bible hints. In addition, there were found at Tel El Farah in the north numerous 10th to 9th century female figurines, some of the earliest known Asherah figurines, and in particular a rare terracotta naus which, to judge from comparative examples, typically had a deity or pair of deities standing in the doorway, one of them certainly Asherah, the old Canaanite mother goddess. This stratum 
in the Canaanite temple model is roughly contemporary with Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, which according to the biblical writers, centralized all worship in Jerusalem. A few miles east of Megiddo lies its sister city, Ta'anak, where even more substantial 10th century cultic remains have come to light. A shrine there consists again of a large olive press. They use the olive oil for the anointing of the kings, of course. A mold for making terracotta female figurines like those at Tel El Farah. In other words, it was an industry to produce images of the ancient mother goddess included in their worship. This is not just a minor thing. This is one of the major points of the cultic practice. There were many other implements found at Ta'anak. There was a particular stand here, a terracotta cult stand from the Ta'anak era. This dates to the 10th century BC. Dever's description of this remarkable stand is really interesting. This stand is probably best understood as a temple model. The top row, or the story, there are four tiers to this, as you can see here in this picture. The top row, or story, shows a quadruped carrying a winged sun disk on its back. The next row down depicts the doorway of the temple, which, however, stands empty, perhaps to signify that the male deity presupposed here in the door of his house, in Hebrew, bait, house, means temple, when it's used of a deity, is invisible. The third row down has a pair of sphinxes, or winged lions, one on each side, examples of the biblical cherubim, that are located in the Solomonic Temple. The bottom row is startling, for it has two similar flanking lions with a smiling nude figure female standing between them, holding them by their ears. Who is this enigmatic figure? I have suggested elsewhere that she can be no other than the Canaanite Asherah. She is known throughout the Levant in this period as the Lion Lady, often depicted nude riding on the back of a lion. A 12th to 11th century inscribed arrowhead from the Jerusalem area reads on one side in the Old Canaanite or the Old Hebrew script, Servant of the Lion Lady probably the title of a professional archer naming his patroness. On the other side, we read his own name, Ben Anat, or Son of Anat, Anat being the old Canaanite version of the goddess, the war goddess. We can wonder what a young model, we can only wonder what a model temple depicting possibly an invisible Yahweh with a very visible Asherah is doing at Israelite Ta'anak in the days of Solomon and the Jerusalem Temple. This is a remarkable piece of ancient Israelite iconography. As we shall see, however, there is much more evidence today for the cult of Asherah in Israel in the biblical period. 
in Carol Vandertorn and Bob Becking and Peter Vanderhorst, Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, they say in the Baal cycle of myths, Asherah is the great goddess. She is mother of the minor gods of the pantheon of the gods in ancient Canaan, referred to as the 70 sons of Atherat. Now we know from other biblical scholars' studies that the Hebrews adapted this to their own theological predilections, and this council of the gods is based upon the ancient Mesopotamian city-state politics. Deuteronomy 32 is a reflection of the sons of El, and Yahweh is identified as the God of Israel of the 70 sons of El. Now, in Mark Smith's The Origins of Biblical Monotheism, the historical context for understanding the biblical God includes other gods and goddesses. There is many deities in ancient Israel worship and cult practice that they acknowledged. The Bible manifests the language of the divine assembly that was adapted from their early Canaanite heritage, of course. <clears throat> the language of assembly, especially in the Psalms and the other poetic books, and the presentation of Yahweh as a king enthroned and surrounded by his heavenly host, these ideas can be found in many biblical passages. 1 Kings 22, Isaiah 6, Daniel 7. At the top of the Judean pantheon stands the divine couple, Yahweh and Asherah. Many scholars believe that the Asherah in the Jerusalem temple was none other than the symbol of the goddess. 2 Kings 17.16 Either a tree or wooden pole, and that the image, the pestle, was hers. The evidence suggests that Asherah was a goddess venerated in the Jerusalem temple, devoted to Yahweh, and was therefore regarded as his consort. To this evidence, scholars would add the 8th century inscriptions from Kuntilat Adrud and Kerbet el Kom that mention Yahweh and his Asherah. The support for the idea of Yahweh and Asherah were a divine couple in ancient Israel and Judah is based upon archaeological discoveries. Although such punitive ditheism that is showing two different deities, Yahweh and Asherah, this was criticized by the prophetic critics in the Old Testament from the 8th century BC onward. And so it was transmuted into more acceptable forms, such as personified wisdom, who was also rendered as a tree in Proverbs chapter 3. Some argue that this form of worship of Yahweh was well known. What is clear from biblical criticism of the Asherah is a paradigm shift away from the model of the divine couple in charge of the four-tiered pantheon 
to a single figure by surrounded by minor powers. Yahweh was the king of the heavenly hosts of deities, with only scattered reference to these mid-level deities having survived. More such divinities are now lost due to the editing of later monotheists. Proverbs 1 through 9 presents a divine invitation from the, di the divine female personification of wisdom. In the past, a number of scholars compared the figure of wisdom to the Canaanite goddess Asherah. The tree of life, which recalls the tree of Asherah, appears in Israelite tradition as a metaphorical expression for wisdom. Proverbs 3.18, compare 11.30 and Proverbs 15.4, Genesis 3.22, Revelation 2.7. Like the symbol of the Asherah, wisdom is a female figure, providing life and nurturing. Proverbs 3.18 may be especially pertinent. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are made happy. William Dever, in his fine book, Did God Have a Wife?, notes several things about Asherah that are pertinent to our analysis here. A few early figurines from the 10th to 9th century BC depict a frontally nude female with long arms, her arms at her long hair, her arms at her side, or her hands at her breasts. These would appear to continue a late Bronze Age Canaanite tradition of plaque figures either standing or lying on a couch, mourners or deities. Most scholars identify these standing figurines with the well-known late bronze age goddess Asherah, especially those with the distinctive bouffant wig worn by the Egyptian goddess Hathor. So there is a syncretism here between the Egyptian Hathor and the Canaanite Asherah, which was involved in Israel's earliest worship. These texts clearly equate the Levantine Asherah as Kudshu, the Holy One. An Egyptian New Kingdom plaque now in the Winchester Museum shows the goddess with her crossed chest bands astride a lion and gives all three of her names, Kudshu, Asherah, Astart, and Anat. Our best evidence for mass production and from a well-dated context of figurines features a very small disc which can hardly be a frame drum and must be a molded or incised cake. I am reminded of Jeremiah's protest about the folk religion in Judean villages of the 7th century BC. The children gather wood, the fathers gather fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven. Jeremiah 7.18. And then he says, compare Jeremiah 44.17-19. The Queen of Heaven is usually identified as a start or Ishtar, another name for the mother goddess. But that name is relatively rare in the biblical texts. 
Far more common than all of these, however, are two types of later specific Judean pillar-based figurines, so-called because they do not model the lower body, which looks like a tree trunk. These proliferated after the fall of Samaria in the late 8th and 7th centuries B.C. From about 1500 to 1200 B.C., we have a large series of metal or mold-made terracotta plaque female figurines. Many are rather stylized. All of them present a nude female frontally with wide hips and full breasts. She may hold lotus blossoms, snakes, or even sacrificed animals in her outstretched hands. Very often she is riding on the back of a lion or sometimes even on the back of a war horse. There is no doubt whatsoever who this figure represents. She is the great goddess of Canaan under many guises. As we've seen, she goes by several names, local names as well, Asherah, Anat, Astart, Ilat, or Balat. Astart is a deity associated with the stars and the heavenly bodies and can be androgynous. Anat is simultaneously a fierce warrior goddess and the passionate lover of the storm god Baal, a goddess of love and death. And Asherah is the consort of the high god El, Lady Asherah of the Sea, and she is known as the mother of the gods. The lore of the Canaanite gods and goddesses and the dramatic stories of their loves and their wars, even their misadventures would have persisted throughout Iron Age Canaan. These oral traditions, preserved in poems and song, constituted a strong undercurrent in Israelite religious thought and practice. Israelites already knew of the centuries-old mother goddess and adapted her into their own theology and practice. My point here is precisely that Canaanite Asherah was Israelite Asherah, and that the phrase Asherah Yahweh in our inscriptions refer to her as the consort of Yahweh, that is, the wife, the partner, the full-fledged partner, not a lesser deity. But it is clear, as most other scholars now acknowledge, that Asherah was a full-fledged deity, and that her cult did flourish in ancient Israel alongside the cult of Yahweh, even as a part of it. The Asherah, as a cultic image, was present as a numinous symbol of power. Both the numinous is the deities, nothing else. Lady Wisdom the Hebrew word chokmah, later the Greek Sophia, appears in several texts, Job 28, 12 through 18, Proverbs 1, 20 through 33, Proverbs 3, 7 through 19, Proverbs 8, 1 through 36, Proverbs 9, 1 through 18. It is significant that Lady Wisdom is portrayed in these biblical texts as partner with Yahweh in creation. It was not singly the male deity who created, but the male with 
his female partner. Wisdom is portrayed in these biblical texts as she goes about on her own speaking publicly for Yahweh, that she brings specific blessings and long life, and above all, that she is a tree of life to them who lay hold on her. By the 3rd century AD, she was already thought of in some circles as a separate divine entity, even referred to as God's Holy Spirit. But a real doctrine of the Shekinah does not develop until later on in the Zohar, and then it explodes with significance for the Jews. Several aspects of the Kabbalah are noteworthy for our purposes. The names, the role of the feminine figures as opposed to the male figure. He obviously, God is called the father, she is the mother, and she is portrayed as sexual energy in this exoteric or esoteric mystical literature Little known to moderns, even Jews, it is striking. The pair are lovers. So the Shekinah is yet another development of the ancient mother goddess in transformed idea in later Jewish, Jewish thought. It is not surprising that humans are encouraged to emulate the gods, Kabbalism, no doubt, building on older traditions of the proper observance of the Sabbath now, came to endow the performance of sexual intercourse on Friday evening with cosmic significance. As Raphael Patai put it, they turned the Sabbath itself into a veritable divine queen, the bride of God himself. So the Kabbalists celebrated the divine as well as their own sexual union on the Sabbath, imitating the cosmic design, thus fulfilling the entire cosmic role of integration of all opposites. That is very, very beautifully portrayed. However the orthodoxy drove the ancient mother, holy mother, underground. She was almost forgotten for centuries until popular piety and archaeology rediscovered and revived her. Asherah, in whatever guise, appears to be alive and well. Margaret Barker, in her book, The Mother of the Lord, the figurines represent a goddess unique to Jerusalem and Judah. The distinctive style of them should reflect what is known about the Lady of Jerusalem. That is how she was known. Not as a foreign deity, but as the Lady of the City. This is what was stamped out by the later monotheists and compilers of the Bible. And they, in turn, put invective and argument against the Asherah into the mouths of the writers. But it is a later theology. The earlier theology was very much worshipping this mother goddess. In the countryside and in the Jerusalem temple, 
She is worshipped as the Queen of Heaven in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. That is where the figurines have interestingly been found. Some of the figurines found in and around Jerusalem have a turban, such as the high priest wore, and Ezekiel himself, a temple priest, saw an angel high priest, apparently a female or male-female figure, being thrown from the holy mountain. That was Ezekiel 28:12-19. Ben Sira, whose name, according to a 6th century Syrian text, was Bar Ashira, the son of Ashira, remembered wisdom as an angel high priest in Jerusalem, who came from the assembly of the Most High to serve in the holy tabernacle of Zion. The figurines had red faces, and the figure whom Ezekiel saw leaving the temple was the fiery living one. The figurines wore white garments, and the women of Jerusalem woven linen garments for the lady, 2 Kings 23.7. Many of the figurines had only one facial feature, huge eyes. Wisdom opened eyes. And the apocalypse of weeks in the book of Enoch remembered that those who abandoned her lost their sight. The most prominent feature of the figurines, of course, these pillar figurines found by the thousands of the ancient Asherah symbolism, was her breasts, emphasized by the position of her hands, and the most obvious meaning of the ancient title El Shaddai is the God with breasts. Ezekiel heard the voice of Shaddai when the living one left the temple. Ezekiel 1.24 and Ezekiel 10.5. Presumably she was Shaddai. All the features of these figurines suggest that she was the Lady of Jerusalem, and this is whom the later monotheist Josiah abandoned and destroyed. Frank Moore Cross, in his excellent Canaanite myth and Hebrew epic, the Eternal One has made a covenant oath with us. Asherah has made a pact with us. So the formulaic juxtaposition here of El's consort, who was Asherah, with Olam in Hebrew, in the bicolon, argues strongly for the identification of Olam as an appellation of the god El. That word Olam means eternal. The two supreme gods are named, and then the verse continues interestingly, and all of the sons of El, and the great of the council of all the holy ones with oaths of heaven and ancient earth. This later became the sons of El in Deuteronomy 32, of which Yahweh was one of those sons, and he was given Israel as his heritage, as his portion. Elat Asherah is the primary wife of El, and as that wife, she was known as the creatress of creatures and creatress of the gods, the great mother goddess. Very significant. Raphael Patai, the Hebrew goddess. 
at least as old as the Near Eastern nude statuettes are myths in which goddesses play a larger, more universal role. A more universal role. It's not just a minor theme at all. The earliest answers to the great questions of whence all reiterate in various forms the same idea it was out of the body of the primordial goddess that the world egg emerged, or that the earth was born, or alternately it was the goddess's body itself that provided the material from which the earth was made. Thus the oldest cosmogonies, like the oldest worship of concretely represented deities, typically start with a primal goddess. Were Asherah, Astarte, and the other goddesses served by the biblical Hebrews Hebrew goddesses, or were they merely foreign abominations as labeled by the prophets? Gods are rarely invented or discovered. Rather, they are taken over by one group from another. Even Yahweh had pre-Hebrew antecedents, and so had the deity called El. This is the Elohim mentioned in the Hebrew portions of the Bible in the Old Testament. And these were identified by the Hebrews with Yahweh. The Roman Jupiter goes back to the Greek Zeus Potter, who in turn is derived from the Sanskrit Dieus Pitar. As long as a god is alive, he can easily cross international frontiers and establish himself in a new country in superficially charged but basically identical image and function. Well, this is probably what happened with Asherah, Astarte, Anat, etc., where they arrived among the Hebrews. Although foreign in origin, they soon adopted the Hebrews as their children and allotted them all the benefits of worship in the, of the goddess. There can be no doubt that the goddess to whom the Hebrews clung with such tenacity down to the days of Josiah, and to whom they returned with such remorse after the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, the prophets didn't have much good to say about her, but all of the rest of Israel loved her, and worshipped her, and prayed to her, and received their blessings from her, while the official Orthodox Jewish cult practice of the monotheists of later times rewrote that early history of goddess worship into a blatant patriarchal monotheism. But that was not the original religion of the early Hebrews. The astonishing thing is, in one of her manifestations, she penetrated, in what period we can only conjecture, the rebuilt sanctuary of King Solomon as a female cherub poised in marital embrace with her male partner in the dark cell of the Holy of Holies. In another instance, she became the manifestation of God's presence, the Shekinah, a female name just as God's masculine name, the loving, rejoicing, motherly, suffering, 
mourning, and in general, emotional charged aspect of deity. The beginnings of the period we're dealing with here go back to the time following the arrival of the Canaanite of the Israelite tribes in ancient Canaan. For about six centuries thereafter, that is to say down to the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, the Hebrews worshipped Asherah, and next to her also other originally Canaanite gods and goddesses in most places and times. It is from biblical sources themselves that we know the names of the three goddesses who were worshipped by the ancient Hebrews down to the days of the Babylonian exile, Asherah, Astarte, and the Queen of Heaven, who was probably identified with Anath. A statue of Asherah was set up in the Jerusalem temple itself. The word Asherah in biblical use can thus refer either to the goddess herself or to her image. That's in 2 Kings 21.3. From a story told in the book of Judges about Gideon, who lived in the 12th century BC, we learn that the Asherah worship in those early days was a communal or public affair. The cult of the goddess Asherah continued among the Hebrews throughout the periods of the Judges and the Kings. While the worship of Asherah was thus a central feature of popular Hebrew religion in the pre-monarchic period, and her statue stood in many a local sanctuary, it remained for King Solomon himself to introduce her worship into his capital city of Jerusalem. As is well known, the very manner in which Solomon's temple was built in Jerusalem was conducive to the establishment of a polytheistic, syncretistic cult. Among the deities whom Solomon worshipped was the goddess of the Sidonians, who, as we have seen, was none other than Asherah. But we have to keep in mind that in polytheistic cultures, the prevalent tendency is to identify one god with another. They basically substitute one god for another. In a polytheism, that doesn't matter. Or else they can combine one god with another. Or they can call the name of one god by the name of another god or goddess. And examples exist in Egyptian, Babylonian, Hittite, and Canaanite religions. In any case, there can be little doubt that it was the worship of Asherah, already popular among the Hebrews for several generations, which was introduced by Solomon into Jerusalem as part of the cult of the royal household for his Sidonian wife. The goddess Asherah was worshipped in Israel from the days of the first settlement in Canaan, the Hebrews having taken over the cult of this great mother goddess from the Canaanites. The cult of the Asherah escaped the popular anti-Baal and pro-Yahweh uprising. Remember, in the Old Testament, this led to Elijah going after the 400 prophets of Baal. And the priests of Asherah showed up for that contest, but they were not condemned nor destroyed.
but the pro-Yahweh camp destroyed the Baal prophets. Remember in ancient Canaanite lore, Yah or, uh, Baal was Asherah's consort. The priestly Elijah, the pro-Yahweh, destroyed Baal so that Yahweh could become Asherah's consort. That's one of the points of the contest of Elijah. That's remarkable. To sum up, we find that the worship of Asherah, which had been popular among the Hebrew tribes for three centuries, this is not just an aberration, this is the fundamental meaning, the use, the cultic, the ritual worship of the goddess was introduced into the Jerusalem temple by King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, in or about 928 B.C. Her statue was worshipped in the temple for 35 years until King Asa removed it in 893 B.C. It was restored to the temple by King Joash in 825 B.C. And it remained there for a full century until King Hezekiah removed it in 725 B.C. After an absence of 27 years, however, Asherah was back again in the temple. This time it was King Manasseh who replaced her in 698 B.C. She remained in the temple for 78 years until the great reformer, King Josiah, removed her in 620 B.C. Upon Josiah's death 11 years later in 609, she was again brought back into the temple, where she remained until his destruction 23 years later in 586. So it appears that of the 370 years during which the Solomonic Temple stood in Jerusalem, for no less than 236 years, almost two-thirds of the time, the statue of Asherah was present in the temple and her worship was a part of the le legitimate religion approved and led by the king, the court, the priesthood, and it was opposed only by a few prophetic voices crying out against it at relatively long intervals. The Kerovim, those winged human figures, which were an integral part, and according to at least one rabbinic opinion, was the most important part of all of Hebrew and Jewish sanctuaries and temples. They were, by any criteria, graven images. And yet they continued to figure prominently in the temple. Ritual down right to the very end of the Second Jewish Commonwealth, 70 CE. The caravan were always in the temple. Moreover, in their last version, the caravan depicted a man and a woman in sexual embrace. That is amazing. What does that mean? Let's keep exploring. 
Their presence in the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary of the temple, and the rituals significantly attributed to them are invariably referred to as the most sacred mystery. Since one of the two Karavim was a female, we find that in addition to the Canaanite goddesses whose worship was condemned by the Hebrew prophets and Jewish sages, the Temple of Jerusalem contained a representation of the female principle, which was considered legitimate at all times. The caravan, which were in the Solomonic Temple, shielded the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. According to the biblical tradition now, in both the desert tabernacle and the Jerusalem Temple, the only supernatural beings represented were the caravan. The caravan couple was shown in marital embrace as husband and wife in a sculpture that stood in the Holy of Holies of the Second Temple. This statuary, we read in Talmudic sources, was shown to the pilgrims who flocked to the temple on the three pilgrimage festivals. It was thus probable, or at least probable, that when Philo made his pilgrimage to this temple, he saw the caravim entwined like man and wife, as the Talmudic phrase has it. Thus when Philo says that the two divine potencies of goodness, male, and sovereignty, the female, represented by the two caravim, were mingled and united, he may be influenced by the caravim as he had seen them in the Temple of Jerusalem. The two divine virtues or powers formulated by Philo that the caravim represent became subsequently a part of Talmudic theology, and they were systematically developed in the theosophy of the Kabbalah. What is surprising at first glance in Philo's dichotomy of the deity is that he attributes the legislative, chastising, and correcting activities, as well as the kingly power, to the female maternal aspect of deity. Very remarkable. And the peaceable, gentle, and beneficent virtues, as well as goodness, to the god's male paternal aspect. Well, there is a logical consistency in thus assigning these two sets of attributes. The mother is the bearer, she is the nurturer, she is the educator, so that is the establisher and the maintainer of order, properly so. So she must be the one who wields the legislative, chastising, and correcting powers, which are the attributes of sovereignty. That makes sense. You can't do without those female abilities, powers, and wisdom. That's why they were included in the symbol of the ancient female caravim in the Holy of Holies in the ancient temples. Absolutely so. The father is the begetter and creator, so by contrast to the mother, he's representative of gentleness, beneficence, goodness, and so on and so forth. It is this Philonic doctrine that we have to look for the earliest roots of medieval Kabbalism, the symbolism in which, as Gershom Sholem has pointed out, women represent not, as one might expect, to be tempted 
the quality of tenderness. No, no. But that of stern judgment, a concept which was unknown to the old mystics of the Merkaba period, and even to the Hasidim in Germany later. But this dominates Kabbalistic literature from the very beginning, and it undoubtedly represents a constituent element of Kabbalistic theology. In the Kabbalah, as in Philo of Alexandria anciently, kingdom is the female aspect of the deity. In the Kabbalah, kingdom is the tenth Sephirah, and kingdom is identified with the Shekinah, the personified female presence of God, and is associated with the stern, uncompromising divine principle of justice, while the male aspect is manifested in the qualities of compassion and mercy. Quite remarkable how they integrate both the female and the male aspect in the divine ancient Godhead, isn't it? And this carried through the centuries, sometimes underground, sometimes above ground, but it was brought forth again in the medieval Kabbalah. And now in our day, right now, 2021, we have been given, for the first time in history, the complete full translation of a text of the Zohar, the most important concept, the most important writings of the Jewish Kabbalah by Daniel Matt and by the Kabbalah Center. It's a day of enlightenment indeed now. As late as the third and fourth centuries of the common century, the memory of the original function of the significance of the cherubim in the Temple of Solomon in the sanctuary, these survived among the Babylonian Talmudic masters. According to one of them, a certain Rabbi Ketina, who flourished in the late third and the early fourth century, when Israel used to make the pilgrimage, they, the priests, would roll up for them the parakeet, the veil separating the holy from the holy of holies, and show them the cherubim, which were intertwined with one another. And the priest would say, Behold, your love before God is like the love of male and female. Rashi, in the 11th century, he was a commentator, explains the passage, the cherubim were joined together and were clinging to and embracing each other like a male who embraces the female. The mythical counterpart of this orgiastic ritual was in ancient Israel, as well as among the other ancient Near Eastern peoples, the great cosmogonic and great cosmological myth cycle according to which the annual period of vegetative fertility was preceded by a union of the male and female elements of nature. So to ensure that this great cosmological copulation takes place in the proper measure and with the requisite intensity, man himself, it was felt, had to perform the sacred sexual act thereby both indicating to the elements of nature what was expected of them and inducing them to do the same through the compulsive force of a religio-magical act. This was the meaning to the ancient Jewish Israelites. 
and it carried through all the way up into, through Jesus' day and the Jerusalem temple of which he was familiar with, all the way up into Babylonian Talmudic times, resurrected again, went underground through the diaspora for a while, then it came again up into the medieval times, then it went back down underground somewhat, then it has flourished, and now today it's full-blown available in the Zohar, the Sefer Yetzirah, and the Kabbalah. Leonor leads expositions of that, of the universal Kabbalah, and the secret doctrine of the Kabbalah are some of the greatest expositions of the Kabbalah ever published, along with Gershom Sholem and Joseph Dan. The Jewish spirituality has come back, in other words. However, the caravan in embrace were regarded as a fitting symbolic expression of the relationship between God and Israel. Rabbi Ketina was, of course, far from being the first to speak of this relationship as one like between man and wife. God is the husband and Israel is his wife. This had become a prophetic commonplace from Hosea to Ezekiel for the last two centuries of the first temple period. In other words, it was this relationship that the cherubim visually depicted, according to the Talmudic sages. While the female cherubim thus symbolized Israel, she also became closely attached to God due to her position in the temple, of course. Once the idea of a female cherub emerged, it was further developed in rabbinical literature. A midrash says that the cherubim whom God placed in the east of Eden to watch over the way of the tree of life, these constantly changed their shapes. At times they were men, at other times they were women. And then again, they were sometimes spirits, sometimes angels. The angels likewise changed their sex according to the will of God. Get this. Oh, there's some interesting stuff here, yes? The angels can change their sex according to the will of God. That's not something you'll hear in church, is it? <laughs> and the cherubim are that symbol. And it's in the Holy of Holies of the temple. Well, that certainly hasn't been restored by Joseph Smith. And today's Mormonism? Forget about it. At other times, their form was changed from women to men. Sometimes from men to women. Occasionally he makes sure the appearance of wind or fire. Fabulously interesting. So, in conclusion to this Caravim idea, Let's return for a moment to the earliest period of Hebrew history, shall we? From which the unequivocal data are so scant that they invite conjecture and hypothesis. Yes, we understand that, truly. Hugo Gressman, in a study about the Ark, expressed the view that originally there must have been two images in it. In it. One image of Yahweh and that of his wife, Anathyahu, or Astarte. 
So, 20 years later, more cautiously, yet along the same line, Julian Morgenstern conjectured that the two sacred stones in the Ark originally represented Yahweh and, in all likelihood, his female companion. The findings of the present study tend to agree with these conjectures. In the beginning, the story can be recapitulated. Two images, or slabs of stone. These were contained in the Ark, representing Yahweh and his consort. At a later stage, when this anthropomorphic view of the deity was overcome, Yahweh was conceived of as the male, the patriarchal, and only God, whom it was forbidden to represent in visual form. And Yahweh's erstwhile female companion was now reduced to the position of a female guardian represented by one or or by one of the two caravim who covered the ark with their wings, which at the same time also served as the seat of Yahweh, following the destruction of the first temple, Solomon's, the idea slowly gained ground that the one and only God comprised two aspects, a male and a female aspect, and that the cherubim in the Holy of Holies of the Second Temple, these were the symbolic representation of these two divine virtues or powers. This was followed by a new development in Talmudic times when the male cherub, was considered as a symbol of God, while the female cherub held in embrace by him, this female stood for the personified community of Israel. So when finally the Kabbalah developed its mystical theory of the Sephirot, and especially of the two most important divine deities, the king and his matronate, and they endowed each of these two with a mythical, independent existence. It considered the caravan pair as the fitting visual representation of these two divine concepts. One last idea I'd like to share is from Eugene Sage's book, A Great Mystery, The Secret of the Jerusalem Temple. I can only share one idea that's one of the most important because of this new archaeological emphasis on the ancient mother goddess, which was a very real part of ancient Israelite worship and cult, which Joseph Smith missed in his restoration. The sacred embrace was an act of spiritual fusion. Now, interestingly, Sage quotes the New Testament here. 1 Corinthians 6, 16-17, Ephesians 5, 31-32. These are happily rendered by the 13th century English word atonement as at one meant. With the divine. So during which the greater partner shared his divine power with the lesser, thus saving her from the corruptibility of the world. Through this might and splendor he has given us his promises, great beyond all price, and through them we may escape the corruption with which lust has infected the world and come to share in the very being of God. 
2 Peter 1 through 4. This is climaxed in the sacred marriage ritual of God and Israel, symbolized by man and woman, symbolized by the embracing cherubim of the ancient Jewish temple, the male and the female, all uniting as one in one spiritualized power. And this is referred to as beholding the face of God. Because the idea of this embrace is to come to a recognition that we are that face of God. And it doesn't matter about sex. Because God was considered as one. And that's the power of the ancient mother goddess. She is the either the yin or the yang in completion of the other half, the yin and the yang. You have to have both. To deliver only the patriarchal substratum is entirely incomplete and it does not complete symbolism. In the Godhead, it is not an all-male Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is Father, Mother, Son, Daughter. It has the entire nuclear encompassing whole, all together. All equally as important and in to related authority. One is not subservient to the other. All of them possess the priesthood. You didn't get that in church, did you? No, of course not. The patriarchal aspect has so overbalanced and overpowered the actual true relationship that they're never going to change. So don't worry about changing the patriarchy. In our own lives, we can see the fulfillment with the inclusion of the male caravim and the female caravim, and we can see that symbiotic relationship and appreciate it and worship it and know that deep within me I am a male, I also have the female element. And you who are female know you also have the male element and it is all one combined unity in God. And that is the most magnificent heritage based on the archaeological findings within the last 75 years. So that's essentially the point I wanted to get across. Thank you for watching my Backyard Professor videos. He misunderstood the entire spiritual point of a grand unification of all into the one. And I think that's a remarkable spiritual concept. So, be good, do well, have fun.
and I will see you all in the next Backyard Professor videos.